You are now listening to the December 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. On November 28, 1995, author Chris Schoenleb's life changed forever. He was told by the Mayo Clinic that he had Lou Gehrig's disease and had no more than two years to live. In Only God Could Heal Me, Schoenleb tells the story of his job-like struggles over the four years following his diagnosis. He vividly describes his emotional roller coaster of trying to live as normally as possible first while planning for his death and then later while searching for healing. After his diagnosis was changed to non-fatal, but totally crippling neurological disorder. Finally, he describes the miraculous end to his struggles, a healing totally unexplainable to modern medicine. So we have Chris Schoenlev here today. Good to see you, Chris. Thank you, I can see you. They can't see you. Great to be here. (laughs) Thanks for doing this. And we also have Polly. Hello. And, uh, you know, we, do, we have guests every once in a while, and I just thought this would be a terrific uh, encouragement. Um, you know, your story is, as uh, most Christians would say, when a miracle happens, I can't believe it. You know, it's unbelievable. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. You've, you've had quite a colorful life. Well, thank you. I I was thinking about what I would say about that question because you gave it to me ahead of time uh, before I came. And I guess the best way to talk about me is to say I lived the all-American life for for 61 years. Hmm. I grew up in northeastern Ohio, went to college, married my high school sweetheart, got a job, went up the corporate ladder, uh, moved a lot. We had four children. And uh, during all that time, uh, while we were moving around, uh, I kept going up higher and higher until finally in 1981, I was in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, president of Arby's. Hmm. And my wife had become a Christian in about three years prior to that, and our marriage wasn't in the best of shape because of my... uh, crawling up the corporate ladder, and, and, and you can imagine, we lived in uh, uh, eight different cities uh, trying to raise four kids over mm. a period of 25 years. Mm. Uh, difficult. Anyway, uh, I found the Lord in 1981 um, after going to church and listening to a pastor just uh, suddenly touch my soul. I'd always been a Christian in the sense that I'd gone to church and that kind of thing, but I was a cultural Christian. Mm. I, we raised our kids and we baptized them and all that good stuff. Huh. So what what specifically changed that day, would you say? Do you know? Uh, I had a dream that scared the living bejesus out of me. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the devil showed up at the front door huh. and invited me to join him. 
Really? I woke up screaming. I really did huh. as a 47-year-old guy. So I imme- immediately went to the pastor, and I talked to him, and I accepted the Lord. And from then on, life was very different. Wow. And I lived that way with, with my life being... I was still a hard-driving businessman. I, I, uh, I moved from, from Arby's to Phoenix, where I became president of Swenson's, and then I moved back to Charlotte, North Carolina, and then I moved to Chicago, where I had my own ad agency. And all during that time, God was with me then, but I uh, wasn't putting him first. And then that all changed. On November 28th, uh, 1995, I found I was going to die. So you started your journey with the Lord— and it got more serious over those 15 years, and then you faced probably the greatest trial of your life, right? Yeah, I think the good Lord was trying to get my attention because <laughs> from whenever I got a new job hmm. and I, I became president of three different companies and hmm. president of my own, mm-hmm. uh, I got fired. And so I think, he, and I, I finally he got tired of getting my attention any other way, so he he sent me to the Mayo Clinic, and I found out I had Lou Gehrig's disease, and I had two years to live or less, and uh, that changed my life forever. Uh, what uh, was the first thing you experienced? Like, how did you even think to go to the doctor? Oh, well, I, uh, I had a period in which my health got progressively worse. My, I, I, be- I lost the use of my wrists, and I was having very great difficulty walking, and I had gone to a couple of neurologists at the suggestion of my doctor, and they had both said, we don't know what's wrong with you, but it may be ALS. My wife, I did not tell this, uh, and she became very suspicious uh, because I didn't want to worry her until somebody gave me a diagnosis, so she called my doctor got the name of the best neurologist she could find, which was at the Mayo Clinic, made the appointment, and said, you're going. <laughs> <laughs> which tells us a little bit about it your does. wife. <laughs> and so I, I, I went, and uh, when we went, I was very happy to go because if you live with uncertainty about a, a disease, you want to know. Right. I, it, it's it causes worse. a lot of anxiety, I would think. If you don't know, it's worse than if you do know. Mm. Yeah, you want to name it. Yeah, you want to name it, and if you're gonna, if you're, if it's bad news, let's get it over with. So you ended up putting, starting to put your affairs in order. You talked about we did some things. We went on a a trip uh, overseas uh, to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary, and uh, you started talking with your kids. Do you remember any of the things that you said to them that, you know, you felt like you never got to say because you were so busy in your business life before? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because I don't remember. But I do find it very fascinating that when you are told you're going to die and your loved one is going to die, no one wants to talk to you about it. Really? The family, so everyone moved away rather than well, asking they, about They it. would come over and we would talk about but, anything about but anything that. But that. They, we, they all showed up for Christmas, the, the year that at our house, and no the talk. elephant was in the room, but no one would talk to me. And what would be your suggestion to somebody who gets a diagnosis and is having to live with cancer or something but knows that it's stage four, et cetera? What would you say to the family members now or what would you say? What advice would you give? Talk to them because there isn't, I don't think there's anyone who's 
in the position like that who doesn't want to talk about it. Mm. Yeah. What did you, what piece of it did you want to talk about? Did you want to talk about how you were feeling in the moment? Did you want to talk about what you were concerned about for the future? What, what, what would you have wanted people to ask you? I wanted to, to talk about what was going to happen to me. I was going to, listen, guys, next few months I'm going to get worse and worse. And if there's anything we need to talk about, let's talk about it now. I wanted to get our affairs in order with the people I was going to talk about, but I wanted to be very open about it. I didn't want, I just didn't feel very comfortable sitting there and talking about uh, what's going to happen at the, to the uh, Phoenix Suns. <laughs> uh, so did you do something about it? Did you step forward and say, I want to talk about it? Or, or, that, or that's what promoted you doing the talks with each person individually? How did it work from there? I did the best I could. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a, not exactly a shrinking violet. Mm-hmm. But I talked to my wife more than anybody else, who, and she... Sounds said, like Look, she calls it like she sees it. Yeah, yeah but she had difficulty too. Oh, and really? one of the problems that you find when you are in was in my position is that people don't want to talk to you who are very close to you. Because mm. it affects them. They start to cry. Mm. They don't want to go they through that. They feel awkward or they don't. They feel awkward. They, they just don't want to do it. So one of the things that happened to me was I had a Stephen minister. And Stephen Ministry, what does that mean? A Stephen Ministry uh, is a ministry that ch- many churches have where you are tr- have a trained person walk alongside you, listen to you, and just let you talk mm. and pray with you. And uh, it's kind of like what your ministry is. You walk mm-hmm. alongside someone and let them talk mm-hmm. uh, and uh, never give advice, mm. but let them know that they're loved and let them know mm. that, that God is with them. And it was a wonderful thing for me. Hmm. As a matter of fact, because of that, after I became better, I my first question was, Lord, why'd you save me? You kill 30,000 people. That That's di- what die each with year of each, ALS? And I, I didn't. Hmm. So why me? So then what did you do from there? Well, how, how long did it take to get that question answered? Uh, until, I di- until I figured out that God wasn't going to tell me, I had to go out and find out. Hmm. And because he knew I was type A and he knew I would. (laughs) So I went out and knocked on a few doors and one opened at the North Phoenix Baptist Church. And one thing led to another. And my wife and I founded a Stephen ministry there. We trained over 100 people. We had a huge ministry for that big church. And doesn't that happen often where we comfort those with the comfort whereby we've been comforted? We get impacted by a ministry, and then we want to share it with everyone. Right. And in Stephen Ministries, particularly that way, almost anyone who's a Stephen minister is what I'd call a wounded healer. Mm. Uh, They've been through a divorce, so Mm. they can talk to you about the pain of divorce. Mm. They've been through the death of a loved one Mm. or the death of a child. Well, I think, Chris, you're touching on a topic that is so important for people who are in close relationship with someone who's dealing with a terminal illness. As, as a mother who's lost a 32-year-old son to cancer, I know how difficult it was for me to talk with him about how he was feeling and what his fears were, because he, as a young man, wanted so desperately to believe that God was going to heal him, but everything in his condition was pointing to the fact that he was going to die. So how, you know, how was I supposed to talk to him? 
about what I thought was going to happen when he really didn't want to hear any negativity. He wanted people around him to be really positive. And, 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 you know, you have to have faith that I'm going to be healed. Don't you believe God is going to heal me? But at the same time, I wanted to be praying for him that he would find comfort no matter what happened. Is that making any sense? Well, and sure. I, I think, too, we have a friend whose, you know, wife did not want to hear any negative comment, no negative, you know, right up until she died. She just wanted to say, I am going to be healed. And, you know, everyone says, okay, so they were healed by dying and going to be with Jesus. Uh but she meant that she was going to turn around in her health, and even her husband wasn't allowed to say any negative thing because that wasn't what they believed. So what would you say to Polly's question? It's difficult because I had such a different approach to the whole issue. But I think you have to talk about what, who God is and, and that he's sovereign, and I can't offer comfort to someone who doesn't want to hear anything, but I'm going to be healed. Right. right. Uh, I, and I think you have to at least... Uh, it's as, a diff- very difficult. That as a, a visitor or a, somebody out beyond the right. person who's that, That's Ill, why the Stephen ministry get, is so good. Yeah. To give that person a, an opportunity anyway to express how they're feeling, what whether they're wrestling with that positive, negative aspect. I, well, I want to have faith... But I also am afraid of dying, and I, I'm in pain, but I want to believe that God is going to heal me. At least have the opportunity to express that rather than talking about some superficial thing about, like, the weather or sports or television programs. Which, which drove me nuts. Yeah, mm. yeah and I, I just think um, I had to accept as the father of a young man that was dying— I mean, there was a lot of denial. He was very angry because he was having to deal with his mortality at 32 years old and all the things that he was going to lose and not experience. He's not going to get married. He's not going to have a child. He's not going to do many of the things that all of us in our mind think that we're going to do. And I had to finally just come to grips with the fact that, you know what, this is just where he's at. And if he wants a $5 water and he thinks that's going to heal him, uh, I'm going to go out and get it. But, you know, at first I got upset because I'm going, why are we spending $5 on water when it costs a buck? I don't even know why we pay a buck for water either. <laughs> but I'm just saying um, I had to finally just be resigned that, you know, he's the one that's dying. I am not. He's dealing with this, and I need to let him emote and feel and think whatever he wants. I would also offer you know, here's what I think God says about that, but I wouldn't argue anymore. But it took a, a while to get there. Yeah, I th- And I counsel and I help people in pastoral settings and that sort of thing. So I am trained. And yet when it's your own son, when it, you know, and for you, your family, we never thought our dad would go through this. No, they never did. And it was very difficult for them. As I said, I think it was more difficult for them than it was for me. Mm. So after you're getting better and you're seeking out, Lord, what is my purpose? What did you end up coming up with? I mean, you end up writing the book because you you wrote the book. How long did that take you? A long time. Uh, What happened was, but it was inevitable because when I was at my nadir, when I was at my worst, when I could um, barely walk, I had an electric cart to walk with. I I was having people dress me. 
a very dear Christian friend of mine said, leaned across the table where we were having a lunch and said, Chris, you must promise me something. And I said, okay, Raj, what? Mm. He said, you must promise me that when you're healed and you will be healed, you will tell everyone about it for the rest of your life. Hmm. Wow. And you must promise God you'll do that. And I said, oh, Raj, he's already saved me from ALS. All I'm going to do is become a cripple. I, I, don't, I don't see this ever happening. But if you insist, do it, he said. I said, I'll do it. So I did. I prayed to God every day that if he healed me, I would tell the world about it for the rest of my life. Hmm. And guess what? Two years later, I was faced with that promise, hmm. and I've done it ever since. Any hmm. place I go, hi, I'm Chris Schoenleb. I'm a, I'm a walking miracle. Hmm. Uh, and what are some of your reactions when you say that to somebody? Normally, the first thing they say is, well, didn't you have any medicine? Hmm. And the second reaction was, wow, <laughs> uh, that's pretty special. Hmm. But I'm not sure that they all accept th- that God did it. Right. Uh, but Certainly there is no other it. explanation. Right. There is absolutely. There is no in my book, I build the case very strongly because there isn't. Anyway, the other thing that I found out was that God wasn't done with me. Uh, I have had a wonderful 20 years since I was picked out of the gutter and, and made whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've become an elder of our church. Uh, I have become involved with the Phoenix Rescue Mission and am on their board and have worked very hard to um, help the homeless in many ways. I've become involved in Bible studies, and I've, I've been mentoring five to seven young men at various times in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the meantime, I've been blessed to see my whole family grow up. I have four children, nine grandchildren, three great-grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I've watched their marriages, their, their graduations, uh, and it's just been a great time. Hmm. And How would you say your relationships with your kids have changed from before ALS to post-ALS? Well, I think uh, I was no longer the authority theory uh, figure, uh, and I think they uh, gained a greater appreciation of who I was, and I gained a greater appreciation of who they were. Uh, We've been a very close family for the last 25 years. Uh, I've been very blessed. We have no divorce in our family. We have uh, all believers. uh, And they're all very... um they're performing rather well in their areas of expertise. I mean, just say what you have one that's a principal of a yes, very big, big high, uh, high school, uh, uh, grade school, high school. And what's it called? Uh, North Valley Christian oh, Academy. North Valley. Yeah, he'll get you on that one. Yeah, he will. <laughs> and, uh, my, my son is a chef. My other son is a chef, and he's done very well. Uh, my daughter is a is a great teacher of English and and uh, is and my other daughter uh, is has been ill, mm. but but that's okay. We have a great family. That's terrific. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think about uh, how you approached life as a younger man, just going kind of like a a bulldog after whatever it was that you wanted, moving thirty seven times and leaving a, a like a train of broken relationships behind you um how have would you say your personality or your approach to relationships has changed 
as a result of ALS. Do you still have those same core values that cause you to go after things, or or do you think you wait more? Do you, how do you just do you, are you still aggressive in how you go after goals? I'm somewhat aggressive. Uh, I think age more than Lou Gehrig's disease has mm. changed that. Age mm. and wisdom. I mean, after so many years, you begin to realize that you can't do it all on your own and somebody's mm. going to have to help you. But I think the biggest change in my approach to people occurred when I became a Christian. Mm. Until I became a Christian, I was a terror as a boss. I always viewed someone as and called them idiots and, and everything else if they didn't do exactly what I wanted them to do. And after that, I... I valued, I looked at someone saying they must be trying their best. They must be doing what they're trying to do because they need a job. I need to help them, not yell at them. Uh. And you think that was because of your reading about and looking at the Bible from a different perspective and what, how Jesus, I mean, how did you, where'd you get that, that change? I got it the minute I accepted Christ. Hmm. It, uh. I had a secretary call two weeks later to my wife's house and uh, my wife's house, our house. And she said, what's happened to your husband? <laughs> He's nice. <laughs> so it's the wow. spirit of God that came yeah. and invaded Absolutely. your body. And you it's were a miracle. changed. It's another miracle, really. Yeah. As a, as and so as you look at, uh, we only have a few min- a couple minutes left. As you think about your future, I mean, you're 83? 85. 85. And you're still, you're writing a book, you're on a couple of boards, you're as active as, as any 40-year-old. Um, what do you see for the future? What, what, what do you think God's got for you in the next few years? Or what's your, I mean, I know we, we're in a Bible study together, and I know you, the Lord sort of spoke to you and said, get your affairs in order, again, not because of a crisis, but doing it more just for the benefit, because you know you're not going to be around here forever, but it doesn't seem like that. It seems like you're going to keep running on. But um, so in the short term, in the next few years, what, what are you hearing the Lord say to you to do, or how are you to live? Take one day at a time. Hmm. Do the best you can and uh, move on. And don't forget that, that all people have value. They all have a story. Try and be of a blessing to them, not a not a hinderment, or in any way get in in their way. Try and help them. Hmm. And uh, I, I think I've mellowed quite a bit because one of my core competencies is not humility. <laughs> <laughs> but but I do think that it's important to keep going. God didn't write anything about retirement in the Bible. Hmm. There's nothing there. So I think I'll just keep going until I can't go. Yeah, that's great. I like that. So we've been talking with Chris Schoenleb, who uh, God chose to heal of ALS. And because of a good friend telling him, if you get healed, uh, I want you to tell everybody you come in contact with uh, who did that for you. And that's what Chris Schoenleb does now whenever he can. If you want one of his books, you can either go on Amazon or Go to our website, walkandtalk, W-A-L-K-A-N-D-T-A-L-K dot org, O-R-G, and we'll make sure we get one to you. And uh, thanks for being with us, Chris. Yeah, uh, thank it was you, a Chris. great journey. I really enjoyed this. Thank and, you. And uh, 
you know, to me, what Chris is exemplifying is what Jesus said. He said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And our desire is that we will walk our talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Call to Bless. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. In 1 Peter 3, 8-12, where Peter is speaking to another group of mostly Gentile Christians... Uh, They're living in the area that would be modern-day Turkey or Roman provinces that this letter would have been circulated to. Many Christians would have received this in these churches. And here he commands them to do what might be what I believe could be the most difficult command in the Bible, to bless those who do evil to them. That's not easy. And I, I don't think it's something that is in us of ourselves. Now, if you're looking at our text this morning, you'll notice in verse 8, there's this little phrase that begins it. He says, finally, now, all of you. And when he says this, uh, he's actually signaling that this points back to a section he began in 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12. So he began in 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12 to start this section. Here he's going to conclude it. And you'll remember there he began this section encouraging Christians to abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against our souls. And then you'll notice that After that, he proceeds to tell us about a number of relationships where we are called to live in a certain way. Now, here's the reason I think he does this. I think those passions that we have in our flesh, that natural bent that we have towards sin, towards selfishness, rather than self-givingness, is actually most clearly experienced. We sense it most quickly and readily in relationships that we have with one another. In other words, our sin, the struggles that we have inside can be most visibly seen in the fights that we have others outside. And you'll remember those relationships that he mentions are some of the closest relationships that people have. Those that that confront them on a day-to-day basis. He says it's important how civilians treat civil authorities. It matters how you treat the government. It matters how masters or servants treat their masters. That matters to Jesus. It matters how wives treat their husbands. Whether they're Christians or not, it matters. And it matters how husbands treat their wives. All of those are contexts where we can begin to sense that flesh, sinful bent that we have. That thing that we fight even within the Spirit when we are in Christ. That is where we begin to recognize that we are rebelling, not just against others, but against God. And so here he begins to conclude that section. And here you'll notice that Peter here calls us to do something that seems maybe to you like it does to me, uh, almost more outrageous than anything that has preceded it. Christ calls us to bless even our enemies. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. That's our big idea, that Christ calls us to bless even our our enemies. All right, well, this morning we're going to begin first with this, uh, what we find in verse 8, and that is this. It's a new heart that precedes this radical calling that we're going to be reading about this morning. Now, here's what's fascinating. Before Paul or Peter calls suffering Christians to bless even their enemies in verse 8, he drops five adjectives describing born-again believers. In fact, if you look in the original, in the Greek, there's not even a verb. It's just five adjectives describing Christians. And you'll notice that as we read through these words, all of them actually are focused on the internal workings of the heart of these Christians. So he's really asking them to consider how is it, how are the mechanisms and the gears of your heart working 
And not only how are they working, but how are they working in this community of Christians, in this local church that you are living out your faith together with. And he says this in verse 8, reading again. He says in 1 Peter 3, 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Have all of these things, all of you. Now, when I see a list in the Bible, I often start asking questions about the list, like why are some things on it? Why are other things not? And then how are these things that he's included in the list related to one another? Like, why is it that he's put these things together? And as you look at this, it might not be at first glance immediately clear. But there are some things that you can notice. You'll notice that he begins and ends with this idea of the mind. We need to have a unity of mind and a humble mind. And then you'll notice that in the middle he says, I want to make sure that you also understand that you need to have sympathy for one another and compassion. Now both of these are affection words. So he talks about your minds and how you think. And then he talks about your affections and how you feel for one another. And then when he gets to the top of what might be a pyramid, he talks about brotherly love. A kind of familial love that we ought to have for one another as Christians. Now all of these words, if you think about them, actually focus on the inner heart, the mind, the will, the emotions, all that really makes you, you. All of these words are focusing on that inner thought life. Now just think about these words. First, you notice that he calls you to a unity of mind, which really means having the same mind or attitude. Now, Peter Ochtenmeyer, speaking of this, he clarifies saying, this unity means not so much uniformity in thought as having a common goal. So that idea of being united in mind means that we have a common goal, which I believe is found in Christ. But there's a second thing. He says that you need to have sympathy. It's a word that means to feel with, to care deeply about the needs, the joys, the sorrows of one another. It's to say that your feelings are really along with and and deeply connected to someone else. Aristotle, describing this word, uh, described it this way. It means feeling another's feelings. It's to actually get in the skin of someone and actually feel with them. Third, he says that we are to have brotherly love. This speaks of a kind of familial or family love, an affection for someone as though your destiny were wrapped up with theirs. It's that kind of care for one another. Now, if you have family, family that you like, you know the kind of thing that he's talking about, right? When you have a a wife or a a child or a husband, someone you you really like, you really love, that's connected to you, you know, they're connected to you by blood, it's a thick relationship, but this relationship, of course, only points to and anticipates the kind of relationship that God's people have in Christ. And we're not just going to live together for a few decades on this planet. We're going to live together for eternity with Christ. We're going to have a, a brotherly, familial kind of love. And fourth, he says, a tender heart or compassion. It's a lot like sympathy, but it speaks of a feeling that you have towards another. Really hard to distinguish from sympathy. But then fifth, he says, we need to have a humble mind. That is a lowly mindset. Not thinking of yourself more than others. And when we think about this list, I really just want to make a couple of observations. For one, notice here that Peter is concerned with our minds. He's concerned with our emotions, with our affections. 
with the way that we feel about others. Not only what we think, he is concerned about our thoughts, but also how we feel about others who are thinking the thoughts that we think in Christ. See, God doesn't only care about how we think, but how we feel. God's concerned about all that we are. And he actually created us with emotions to bring him glory. But you also have to ask, when you read a list like this, if you're anything like me, I'm asking myself, especially if it's early in the morning and before I've drunk coffee, but even now, what do you do if you don't think and feel like Peter says we should think and feel, right? Like some of you, I'm thinking you're reading this list and you're going, yeah, sure, that's what Christians ought to think and feel. I know this. And you're able to skip over it because you don't feel the weight of that. But I think that we ought to feel the weight of coming to a text like this and recognizing, you know what, this morning I have somebody that I'm angry with. Last week I had a fight with someone. I actually think pretty well of myself. I'm not as humble as I ought to be. We shouldn't leave without feeling the restraining power and force of that. This isn't supposed to be kind of an easy checklist of, yeah, I'm kind of killing it as a lover of Jesus today. So what if you tend towards division with local churches rather than unity. I know some people who say they love Jesus and they cannot find a church in all of Phoenix that they can agree with enough to go to. And I just think Phoenix has got like 5 million people and you can't find like two or three to gather with. Or maybe your concern is subtler than that. You don't really care about other Christians in your church in this way. You don't feel that warmth of affection and love for them like you ought to. And maybe you know that you ought to want to love more than you do and have those kinds of feelings and you feel convicted that you don't. And you don't even think that the problem is them. You, you really believe that it's you. You do not feel with or for them and hardly would see them as family. And maybe if you were honest this morning, you'd say, you know, I really am more proud than humble. But catch this. God says that He cares just as much about our hearts being new is our actions being moral. God wants us to be good and glorify Him. But here, notice, He is pointing and pressing us into our actual love and affection for God and others. How we think and how we feel for others. And He desires that our outward actions actually first flow from an inward heart disposition that has been made new. And the new birth means that we have new loves, new joys, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes to those who are children of God. So what do you do if you don't think and feel like you should? I want to carefully wade into this because I know my own heart. And I know the hearts of, of some of you. There are some Christians who uh, just have a, a gentle disposition and their knee-jerk reaction whenever they read texts like this is immediately to think, well, I must not be a Christian Brother or sister, let me just say, there are those who can be fearful and, and doubt that maybe they're a Christian and still yet be a Christian because they have weak consciences. For you, let me just encourage you, if, if this causes doubt in you, please run to another believer who can encourage you as to where you stand with the Lord and evidences of grace in your life. But we do need to acknowledge that it is also entirely possible to think that you are a Christian and not be. You know, if you don't feel like a Christian... There is one possibility, it is not the only possibility, but it could be that it's because you are not a Christian. It's possible to know about God and not know God. You know, this last weekend, George Bush died, the 41st president of our nation. He died, and I know all kinds of things about my president. He's my president, right? Like, he's been our president, we know about him, we've watched videos on him, we've read biographies about him. There's a lot to be known about him, but I do not know George Bush, if I saw him in a crowd, he would not have known me. I don't know George Bush. 
It is possible in the same way to know much about God and not know God. Not just that you know it, but that you sense the goodness of God. You can come in and you hear week and week about the week after week about the sweetness of God and the goodness of Christ and not feel the weight and the truth and the veracity of our sins before him and not sense and see and savor the goodness of the Savior who saved you. And what kind of God would send a Christ like that to save a sinner like you and me? You can actually hear about the greatness of God without sensing the true goodness of him. It's one thing to hear that God is good and a holy other to taste and see that Jesus is good and there is none better. In Matthew 7, 22, Jesus warns that many, many will come to me on that last day and even some who will come will say that I have prophesied in your name, I have performed great miracles and on that day he warns him, he says, I just want you to be warned. On that day you will hear, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because they did not truly put their faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that Christians don't struggle to love as they should. Let me just tell you that I struggle and fight every day to love God as I should. Grieves me with how much I know God ought to be loved and I don't love him as I ought. We know that Christians struggle not to feel as they should or think as they should. But my question is, do you sense that something is wrong when you don't love and long for God and his people as you should? If not, you might almost be a Christian, but not a Christian. And your lack of affections might point back to your need for God to raise you to newness of life. But what about those who think they are Christians and feel convicted when they read a text like this? And I don't know how you read texts like this and you're not drawn in to a desire to repent and be made new. Maybe you sense that your heart lacks the warmth of love that comes from Christ and sweeps you up into a love for Christ and others. Maybe you need to take a nap or see a doctor. You know, sometimes physical things can really hinder spiritual things. Maybe you just need to get that stuff checked out so that you can pursue God better. Maybe you're not as emotional as others. And maybe you were led astray because your emotions are too powerful and you get emotional about the wrong things. But if we're honest this morning, all of us desire for God to revive our hearts, awaking us to just how odious our sin is and the sin of others is and how hopeless we are before God left to his wrath but also how incomprehensibly inexhaustibly gloriously sweet beautiful melodious warm strong merciful gracious and relentless in love is our God oh that God would wake us to that when we read this text the right response is revive me oh God wake me up You deserve more worship from us. Help us. So if you desire to be revived this morning, let me encourage you to do a number of things. I believe it begins with repentance. Turning to God and confessing that you don't feel like you should. Right? Like God, I just confessed this morning, there are things that I should hate with more vehemence like my sin that I don't hate enough. And there are things that I should love and rejoice in more that I'm not doing this morning. And I need nothing less than you to help me love you. Repent. And second, read God's word daily. And as you read it, don't read it in the sense of, I need to read it to make sure that I've done the thing that Christians do. Right? Because I've heard that Christians are supposed to do this. But as you read, pray and ask that God would give you a heart for the word of God. That you would truly believe that this is the very voice of God that called out everything that is from that which is not. The word that came and sent his very son who took on flesh 
to come and die for you. A word that raises us to newness of life, that really does transform. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit would give you eyes to see and understand more of the glories of Christ. Pray, read, read and pray third. Pray for God to revive you and others. You know, I'm guessing this morning you might be thinking, like, I'm the heart that needs to be revived in this room. And brothers, you can pray for your pastor, sisters, you can pray for your pastor and for those around you. Like, each of us need to be revived. We need to be awakened more to the glories of Christ. We need to recognize that, that all of us, none of us, love Christ as fully as we ought. We need God to move amongst us. Fourth, meditate on Christ in the Word. And Colossians is a great place to go. Colossians, one of those books that has uh, more mentions of Christ than you have verses. I mean, it's a, a book that's just replete. It's all about Jesus. Jesus this and Christ that. And it's all about the excellencies of Christ. Spend time meditating, nursing that book. You know, the unity that we need is found in Christ. And we need compassion for others that looks like the compassion that Christ has shown to us. And we are brotherhood knit together with the very blood of Christ. So you can see how knowing more of Christ can help us to have brotherly affection. A unity of body and a humility of mind. And those things come from Christ. See, communal harmony begins in individual hearts humbled by the love of God. Communal harmony begins in individual hearts humbled by the love of God. And don't miss this. The affections God calls us to, they're not only difficult and scary, they are impossible apart from God working in us and through us, which makes us always dependent on God. Do you see it? We are always dependent on God for what he calls us to. We can't ever just say like, okay, well now I'm saved and I can kind of do this on my own. When we are saved and God calls us to love him with the kind of affections that he speaks of in verse 8, it is a reminder that you're never free of me. You always need more of me. And you can't even get more of me or want to want more of me unless you're seeking me. We need more of Jesus. But these affections here in this text, I believe, are so important because they absolutely precede the application in verse 9. Do you see it? Like, If you want to do this radical thing that God is calling you to, that action is preceded by affections. And if my actions are not what God calls me to, then I need to go back to my affections. But here's what he says once we understand the need for the affections that are turned towards God. He says this, second in verse 9, God calls Christians to bless even their enemies. Now you'll take note of this command. Peter has moved from the affections to the actions. And here's what he says in verse 9. This verse ruins me. He says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, he says, Bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now don't miss this. There isn't a place, or a context, or a culture that would have read this and felt like this was an easy thing to do. There's not a person, I don't think, that has read this, apart from the insane man or woman, that has not been challenged and broken by this calling. You don't have to really do much thinking to really get into how challenging this is. This is a radical calling. It's radical because it's not natural to the flesh to repay evil with good. At least that's not the way I'm built. Luke 6, 27 to 28, or other texts like this one, where Jesus commands the people listening to him, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Sounds a lot like Jesus. 
Sounds a lot like Paul. You remember Romans 12, 14, where he says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And if you're thinking about it, that would make a lot of sense in context that Peter would be talking about loving enemies because they're living in a culture where these Christians Peter's writing to experience all kinds of sufferings, sufferings on every level, uh, from their masters to their husbands to their civil authorities. Everybody's sort of been on the attack. And so it makes sense that he was speaking to Christians facing varying degrees of persecution from the outside. But catch this, I don't think we can just limit it to that. I believe here again, Peter is actually making an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? I mean, if we have to love our enemies, I don't think he's saying, love your enemies, but if it's another Christian, you can kind of take the gloves off, right? I don't care how you treat them. That's not at all what he's saying. No, here I I think that he is saying that we are called as professing Christians to love others even when they do harm to us. Now, there are a couple of things that strike me here. One theological and one practical. Theologically, uh, just remember that calling is used in different ways in the Bible. So sometimes we talk about the calling of God in a sense of a general call. Like when we preach, we actually proclaim the gospel. And we call all who will believe to come and to believe in Christ and to be saved. But sometimes the scriptures actually use it in more of a specific way. Now, you'll remember that Peter has already used calling in a powerful way in 1 Peter 2.9, speaking of the God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. We also find that God has called others in very specific and powerful and effective ways. You'll remember that God called Abraham out of the darkness of paganism into the light of the true faith of God. And God called us out from living under the curse to living in Christ, that we might be a blessing to the nations. And this sounds very similar to the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, doesn't it? That we would be called to Christ, that we might be a blessing to others? Well, that's exactly the kind of thing that God promises Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where he says, after he calls him out, I will make of you a great nation. This is the promise. And I will bless you and make your name great. Catch this, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God called Abram to be a blessing. Jesus came telling us what the blessed life looks like on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Told us what it looks like to be blessed. And here God in 1 Peter calls every Christian to be a blessing. Now, that word for blessing, it's a word that means to to make happy. It speaks of believers who are actually asking God to show grace and favor on others. God's people are conduits of God's grace. That has always been the nature of God's people. See, those who know grace, show grace. God's people bless even amidst distress. There's not like a special category or subset of, oh, hey, there are these circumstances where I'm suffering, so is it okay if I just start cursing people and not blessing them anymore? God says, no. You've been made to bless from all situations and circumstances. Now, I also have a, a practical observation here. Take note of who Peter's telling these guys to bless. It is those who do evil, speak evil, or revile them. Revile is just a word that means to slander or to speak words that are you know, injurious or harmful. And he says, even those people who are insulting you, I want you to pray for God's favor on them. Seek God's favor on them. Now, again, I don't know about you, but my nature is not immediately to seek to bless those who do evil to me. See, that's the nature of what I believe God's calling us to. We are not altogether there yet. 
See, my desire often is to use words to tear down rather than build up. I'm usually driven more by fear of man. And that's what reviling means. It means just to injure with words. But Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? He said that we should also do good and bless those who curse us. But don't miss this. First, you were called up front to be a blessing and not a curse to others. That's what you were called to as a Christian. And second, your future is incredibly bright. That's the thing that he wants you to remind Don't let this current darkness dominate the way that you think about you and others and the reality that is. There's a future that is incredibly bright. Why do I say that? Notice why. Why is it that they bless those who curse them? It's because this. He says, so that, that's the purpose, they will inherit a blessing which is eternal life. Speaking of Christians who are blessing those who curse them. In other words, our future blessing and inheritance that's coming when Jesus returns is the motive for us forgiving our enemies and seeking their good. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, is that like works righteousness? That we are doing this so we get this. We, we show grace so we get grace. I don't think that's what's happening at all. You'll remember that this whole letter, it's a letter written together and the things that come before it are connected to it. And he's already said that God calls them to be born again in verse 1-3. And he's promised that he will preserve them to the end in verse 1-5. So he's not saying that they will lose their salvation. I think he's saying, if you really trust God and what he says about your future, if you really have faith, it will fuel your behavior to live in otherworldly ways like forgiving your enemies. If you really know the grace of God, you will even be able to do this otherworldly thing of forgiving your enemies. And if you refuse to bless your enemies, it might be because you don't trust God. See, Peter says behavior is a necessary element to true faith. We are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We are saved not by faith and works, but a faith that works, right? In other words, justifying faith will sanctify us both in the heart and the hands. True faith transforms from the inside out. We will change the God of the universe. That we can actually go and and be indwelt by Him and not have any kind of visible change in the way that we live and love others. I believe the gospel says that we will be transformed and changed, degree by degree, but we will be changed. And then Peter goes on to illustrate this with a quote from David in Psalm 34. He does this in verses 10 to 12. In verses 10 to 12, we find Peter quoting Psalm 34 to kind of explain the point that he's making. And here what he shows is the fear of the Lord must reign in our hearts. Now, this quote is, is, is interesting. It's a psalm, Psalm 34, about God delivering David, who's been experiencing suffering. Now, Psalm 34 actually carries an inspired superscript or heading that attributes this psalm to a specific event in David's life that's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. So if you want to understand what's going on here, you have to look to Psalm 34 and read that. And then if you want to understand that, you've got to look back to 1 Samuel 21 to understand what the context was that he was writing from. And what we find is, is that David has just escaped King Saul, who tried to take his life. In fact, he's been trying to kill David. And he escapes. And as soon as he escapes the hand of David, he runs into the king of Gath, who also wants to kill him. And he narrowly escapes by pretending that he's crazy. And this king cast him out of the city to safety. And it's there that he writes Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 begins with a song of praise to the greatness of God. But then in verse 11 that he begins to quote here, he begins to actually talk about how he wants to 
teach or instruct the people of God about the fear of the Lord. He says, I want you to have a good life, and it all begins with the fear of the Lord. You need to fear the Lord more than you fear earthly kings. You need to trust him. You don't need to trust the fearful experiences around you with the way that you behave. You need to trust God. And that's when he says these words, beginning in verse 10 and quoted in 1 Peter. He says this. He says, For whoever desires to live life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now for David, the fear of the Lord was not the fear of a monster, but it was the the reverential fear or respect that a child would have for a father, a father who is sovereign, who is powerful, who is just in all of his disciplines, who is the source of every good in his life, that there is no good that comes to him except through the hand of the father. That's the fear of the Lord that he's calling for, that you trust this one above all else. And don't miss this. For David and Peter, the fear of the Lord is as much about attitude as action. The way that you view God, the world, and others as the way that you live it. They go hand in hand. As one pastor put it, if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else and be controlled by those things. And that's what God is what David is calling for here, what Peter is saying that we ought to do. Loving and living, they go together. Now David likely spoke of the love of life and seeing good days in the context that he was writing from. If you want the good life, then you need to turn away or repent of evil and do good. Pursue peace. Be a peacemaker, right? That's what he's calling them to. And David, he could have actually been something quite the opposite. David had a number of opportunities to kill King Saul. But instead, he pursued peace, and it led to a great deal of suffering for David's part. But David lived under the gaze of God and knew God's ears were open to his prayers, even as he was running for his life. David knew this. He knew that the face of the Lord was against those who do evil, even in response to evil done to them. He knew that. He knew that the option wasn't to do evil to get out of his trouble, but rather it was to obey God and to follow him and to love him and to serve him. And why does Peter quote this here? See, though David spoke of life and blessings in this world, for Peter, I believe this language is almost certainly referring to an end-time salvation. Now, Peter is pointing their eyes towards the great blessing that is coming for all of those who are in Christ when Christ returns for his people. So I think Peter is saying there is a, a greater day that is coming. And David used this to teach Israel to trust in God and not to turn to evil amidst suffering in pursuit of the good life. But David was only a type. He was a a picture of a greater David that was to come. See, Jesus Christ, whom the Father delivered, not just from earthly kings, but from death itself when he raised him from the dead. See, he is truly the righteous man who came in humility before he was exalted. He is the ultimate righteous peacemaker who came and gave his life to bring his enemies peace with God. We should be able to bring peace to those who do evil to us Just in the sense that we are reminded of who Christ is and the love that he has shown us. He did not love us while we were lovely. He loved us while we were enemies. In fact, Isaiah 53, that great evangelist and prophet, looked forward to the day that Jesus would come. And he described him in this way. He says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet catch this, he opened not his mouth. He did not revile. He didn't insult those 
who came to take his life. He didn't seek to curse them as he could. I mean, this is the God-man, and yet he did not. He opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shear silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, the text repeats it. He kept his mouth closed. He watched his mouth and his speech even as he suffered unjustly. See, Jesus could have cursed humanity, but he sought to be a blessing towards unworthy sinners like you and me. Could have called down the host of heaven to destroy us as he hung on that cross at Calvary. He could have said, Lord, wipe them out and start over because I know you're fully able to do that. But instead he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what a savior. God really does call his people to love their enemies. This isn't just hard, it's impossible left to ourselves. This calling reminds us, catch me, of just how dependent we are on God's grace, not just day by day, but moment by moment, and how desperate we should be for more of Him. Do you see it? Like this is meant to drive us to an end of ourselves that we might seek more of Christ. If you don't think you're desperately needy, like a great verse to go straight to is 1 Peter 3.9. And then you will see how needy we are. But is there a way in which your theology has gotten so twisted that resting in Christ means it's okay to like not take God seriously and seeking peace with others? And, and what about your assurance of salvation? Has it numbed you to the seriousness of repaying evil with evil? Like, if you, you find yourself like actually treating people in ways, in certain context, and thinking that it's okay? That like God's sort of okay with it because of an assurance of salvation. You know, you got your assurance of salvation. God's going to love me. He's never going to leave me. And so I can kind of act however I want. Now, we know biblically that's not right. But experientially, does that, that lie kind of seep into the way that we treat others? And I'm not even talking, as we think about this, about blessing enemies yet. I mean, think about it. There are all kinds of contexts that, that we need to be thinking about. For instance, parents, what about kids? Do we scream at our children because we fail to fear the Lord and trust Him and His work in their lives and ours? Do we fear the way that others are looking at us and it makes us angry with our kids in ways that do not show a trust in God? We need to trust that God can do far more than we can think or imagine. And when we doubt His Word, we need to ask Him to help our hearts to trust and believe and love Him for who He is. This morning, what I want to do, I want to close in just a time of prayer. I just want to ask everybody just to take a moment. And I want you to spend some time just praying. Praying about relationships that you need God through His Spirit to come and help you to have a heart to love people who you are angry with. People that you have not forgiven, that you have not made peace with. And ask that God would do what only He could do. That might be strained relationships with children. It might be strained relationships with spouses. We're not promised that all of our relationships will be made whole this side of Jesus come back, but we can be sure that God has called us to seek to be peacemakers. Let's pray that God would do that in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Yeah.
There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. Where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down at the Coming up next is Understanding Israel.
everyone, and welcome to our final program in our series, Understanding Israel. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. During our time studying Israel, we have spent a considerable amount of time in the Old Testament, understanding God's law and ordinances and why the Jewish people observe them so religiously, as well as understanding how precious the children of Israel are to God centuries ago as well as today. We also learned as new believers how we can take some of those laws and ordinances and apply them to Jesus and our hope for the future. We took a brief look at prophecy as well, seeing that God is 100% accurate in everything he foretold, so we know that future prophecies will also be fulfilled 100% accurately as well. Some say the scriptures is God's love letter to the people of the world. God chose Abram to begin a nation that would be an example and teach about God to the nations of the world. But because of sin, they didn't always do what God had ordained them to do. It doesn't mean that God loves them less or cut them off. God, in his infinite knowledge and long-suffering, forgave them every time they cried out to him. Yes, sometimes he disciplined the Jews, like the Babylonian exile, but it only lasted 70 years, and God answered the prayers of men like Daniel and Nehemiah, and over the course of time, the Jews were back in their land again. This is an encouraging thought for us, knowing that because of sin, we don't always do what God wants us to do either, and he disciplines us as well. God doesn't stop loving us because of the messes and rebellion that we do against him, but when we cry out to him, he willingly forgives us just as he has forgiven the Jews of the scriptures. Today there is a lot of political turmoil and secularism going on in Israel, and this too plays into the future events for Israel. After Jesus died on the cross and ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit anointed the apostles on Pentecost, God pushed the pause button, so to speak, on the Jews and sent out the apostles preaching the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles all over the known world. The church age has lasted a little over 2,000 years, and it will soon come to an end. Along the way, many Jews have and are still coming to a realization that Jesus is their true Messiah, but the majority of them will be blinded to the truth. Like a veil that has been put over the eyes of most Jews, they do not see who Jesus was and what is coming in their future. The Jews will go through the fire of tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, and they will be saved at the coming of Jesus. In closing, it is my fervent prayer that you have a greater understanding of Israel and the Jewish people. They are the family that God has grafted us into, and we are to love them as brothers and sisters, blessing them even when they don't understand our ways and our belief in Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with the words of Isaiah in chapter 62, verses 1-4, through 6-7, and 11-12. through 12. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness, and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness, and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, 
which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it no longer be said, desolate, but you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land, married, for the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen, all day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. And as David said in Psalm 122, verse 6, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Pray also for the salvation of the Jewish people, that many will be saved before the tribulation begins. God bless you all, and Shalom. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.